0: Welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. And we're doing something a little bit different this week. There's a bunch of big cultural news out there, and you may be feeling a little overwhelmed by it. So we have assembled a panel of Vox guests to talk about it. We're going to start off by talking about Avengers Infinity War, the box office record-breaking smash hit that has rewritten the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or has it? And we're going to be talking about that with Alex Abad-Santos of Vox's culture team. He's our superhero expert. If you don't want to be spoiled about the movie, there's a section at the start where we don't talk any spoilers. We'll give you plenty of spoiler warnings, and then you can skip ahead. We have the time code in the description of the episode. And after that, we're going to be talking about the sitcom Roseanne with some other folks from Vox. But please stick around. I think you're going to enjoy this. I think especially if you're struggling to keep up with all the pop culture out there, we've got your back. Talking Avengers Infinity War just had the biggest opening weekend of all time. I'm joined by Alex Abed Santos of Vox's culture team, our superhero expert. Alex, thank you for coming in.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Todd.
0: We're going to be doing spoilers, but I'll give you all who haven't seen Infinity War a spoiler warning so you can stop listening when we're going to delve into it. But we're going to just talk really generally now without spoilers. I'm going to ask you, Alex, did you like
1: this movie? I liked three of the movies that were in the movie, if that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) How many movies would you say were in it total? When I was screening the movie, I actually saw or I... Knocked down every single time like I thought that the movie was going to end and it ended up being like I thought it could have ended four times before it actually ended I mean there's a space opera in it there's a little bit of romance there's a little comedy it's also a thorn and a Guardians movie too more than it is any other movie so I like like 80% of it and I really love the ending and I really love like the gutsiness of it but I don't think it's as good as Black Panther. I think it was a giant spectacle.
0: It is a huge, huge movie. I think when I got out of it, I immediately talked to my friend David Sims of uh, The Atlantic, who's been on the podcast before. I said, what a large collection of things that happen in a 150-minute time frame. And like that's that's kind of been my feeling about it. I like it more than I don't like it but also it felt sort of randomly assembled to me from like leftover parts from other movies. And I am a weirdo in that I am really a supporter of age of Ultron, which a lot of people hate, but that movie to me felt like it had a core, like it had an emotional through line, like it was trying to do some interesting things with these characters and infinity war is just a big collection of stuff. On that level, it's a lot of fun. It has a lot of scenes that are really fun. It has a lot of, as you said, movies that are really fun. But uh, I certainly felt like it didn't have that connective tissue I wanted that I think the best Marvel movies like Black Panther, for instance, really do have. But maybe you feel differently.
1: I don't know anyone that could possibly, or any director that would take something as gigantic as Infinity War and be able to do something, like, cohesive with it because it's literally so many people. You had the most, like, profitable movie, one of the most successful Marvel movies in Black Panther, and the main character got, like, three lines. He just was like, well, let's go to Wakanda. We have to defend Wakanda. And that was it. That was the main character of the biggest Marvel movie ever made since Avengers. So I think there was just a ton of stuff there that was happening. The villain wise, I think that that's where the core was and that was where all the emotion was. And maybe we're just not used to seeing a Marvel villain be like the core, emotional core of a movie.
0: And now I'm going to go to the spoilers. So if you don't want to be spoiled for Infinity War, you need to skip ahead. We'll put the time code for the next part of the show in the description. You can go look at it and jump to that. Please
1: don't be mad at us, Disney. Please don't be mad at
0: us. So I want to start with Thanos. I think you're right. Alex, he's really the protagonist of this movie. He's the only one who has a traditional character arc. He has a goal he wants to achieve. He goes through numerous setbacks on his way to achieving it, and ultimately he gets his way. And I think that that is an interesting way to structure the movie, and you were sort of alluding to that. So now that we can spoil everybody, Alex, tell me how you felt about Thanos and his his quest.
1: Like, one of the biggest criticisms that you see of Marvel movies is that the villain isn't really developed. The villain wants to, like, destroy the universe or he or she wants to, like, rule the planet or amass all this power, but they never really explain, like, the why. You could fill in, like... Like, Kate Blanchett as hella, or you could fill in uh, almost, like, some of the elements of Killmonger. And it's, like, the end goal is, always, like, let's arrange the world in the way we want it. But they never really – I mean, they did a little bit better job with, like, Killmonger and explaining, like, his worldview. But it's all, like, these kind of, like, amorphous villains that just want to take over stuff and blow stuff up, and they don't really tell you why or what's really driving them there. And so you have Thanos – And it's really kind of nice to see him explain, like, why he thinks the way he's thinking. Even if you disagree with him, you could be like, well, this is the way it was on his home planet. This is the solution he thinks. He's hard-headed. He is hell-bent on basically culling the universe to make it better. I've seen him referred to as a hardcore environmentalist who is very, very concerned about our natural resources. I think if you think about Marvel movies as kind of like this uh, assembly line of characters and villains... They almost kind of bleed into one another with all the flaws and some of them are minor, some of them are major in Infinity War. I don't think that you ever could mistake or could say that Infinity War has this flaw of a villain that doesn't really have a personality, that doesn't have a worldview, that doesn't have like his own distinct mentality.
0: They've been building up Thanos for so long, like since the end of the original Avengers in 2012. And, like, that's a lot to put on one character. And if he had not worked, the whole movie would have fallen apart. And I do wonder, like, if that's why they made it his story to a degree. Because they wanted you to really be invested in him pulling off whatever it is he needs to pull off. Before we get off the Thanos tip, I want to ask you if you felt his relationship with Gamora, which to me kind of came out of nowhere but worked, if you felt that was handled well, because a lot of the movie hinges on it.
1: It does come out of nowhere a bit. And it's a little bit like you're watching almost like this alt timeline for Shrek. (laughs) Baby Gamora looks (laughs) looks like she could be related to Shrek. It's a little weird. I think that's more of like a kind of void of what the Guardians movies didn't do. Like, if you remember the first one, everyone's so obsessed with with Thanos and they're so obsessed with, like, saving the world. And then the second one, it kind of strays away from that. And you kind of forget that, like, oh, Thanos, uh, he killed Drax's family. Or, or I guess you get into it a little bit with, like, Nebula when she reminds you that he tortured them. But uh, that motivation from Gamora kind of comes out of nowhere. But I think to the point of, like, Zoe Saldana, it's like, she got a character... That's way more rounded out. That's way more filled out than what she gets to play or gets a version of a Gamora versus the one that's in the Guardians movies where she's kind of like handcuffed to Star-Lord and being his like romantic foil versus now she gets to talk about like her family and how she feels about her father. Kind of, I almost think that she took a little too long to figure out that he was going to throw her off the cliff. You saw the Thanos CGI tears. You knew it was coming Gamora. I wanted to save you. I just wanted <laughs> you to flip away and run away, but you didn't.
0: My friend, uh, the YouTube video essayist, uh, Lindsay Ellis has a really smart essay about guardians of the galaxy Two and how it's about learning to deal with abusive parents and Thanos sort of standing in as Gamora's abusive parent. And I, I don't know how I see the way that movie presents her relationship with Thanos squaring with the way this movie does where this movie is almost like there's still like a weird affection there, even though she hates him. I'm interested to see, obviously Gamora like dies, but she's going to be, I'm so sure she's going to be resurrected, that I'm interested to see what future movies might do with that. But sort of getting on on the sense that I think we both think this movie served Gamora pretty well, who are some of the Avengers or Marvel superheroes, I guess we should say, who the movie served well and who are some of the characters who maybe weren't served as well. We've already alluded to the fact that Black Panther has maybe four
1: lines. He has four lines. Uh, And Shuri, who is possibly the glittering gem of that Black Panther movie, has one line and she gets slapped. And you're just like, this is not the movie I paid money to see. (laughs) If If you're a giant... Black Panther fan, you're like, what?
0: It's going on? They do let Okoye uh, team up with Scarlet Witch and Black Widow to fight uh, Carrie Coon of TV's The Leftovers. So... <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Uh, but yeah, who do you think that was, was, was well-served and who wasn't?
1: Um, Do you want to go with well-served first or not well-served? Do well-served first. Um, Doctor Strange, I think. I didn't really care about Doctor Strange that much when I saw the movie. I thought Tilda Swinton completely ran away with that movie as the ancient one. And I think you get a little bit more of I guess the way he sees it's very simple but like he sees the world a lot differently and it sort of clashes with Iron Man a bit. Like the way they think about like the Time Stone and how they save the world. And even at the end when he's like I'm doing this to save Whatever, like he sees, like all the possibilities, and this is the way he's going to approach it. He's going to trade the time stone for Iron Man, and that just elicited a huge groan for me. But I'm like, oh well, actually, I got to know you a little bit more in this movie than I did in your own movie. I kind of
0: felt like the movie served Thor well. He certainly, like, I wouldn't say it was a great Thor story, but he like got to do some good stuff. I was kind of into the thing where he has to like absorb the energy of a star or something. It really felt like a setup for a character who was going to die and he he just didn't. But it was definitely like more than I've cared about Thor in any of the other Avengers movies. I felt like he got a lot of the best laugh lines too. I was pleasantly surprised by how they utilized that character um, as opposed to some of the other original Avengers. Like Captain America doesn't really get too much to do. But who do you feel like wasn't particularly well served?
1: I think we went over it. I think Captain America gets nothing. When you see like the shift from like Tony, Tony Stark being like the moral center and like the heart of the group, and it kind of shifts a little bit in Civil War. And you're supposed to see like Captain America is like, yes, that's the dude I want to run with, because he will he will protect me, he will save me, he will fight for what's right. I think if you look at like the past like what, 19 Marvel movies, you start off with this guy who's kind of like he does everything he's told, and he's like trust the government. And then in the next movie, like when he's come back for Avengers, he's the fish out of water. And then it's like Winter Soldier comes and Civil War comes, and he just he turns into this guy that like completely goes against everything that he's been taught. And I feel like that arc of that character, I thought we were going to get more of it in Infinity War, and he gets four lines. For me, a character that was
0: poorly served, even though he had like a full storyline, was uh, was Star Lord by the last third of the movie after Gamora dies is like sort of losing is sort of like loses it. And like, is the reason the universe is destroyed because he throws a temper tantrum. You've talked more about this with me. So I want to hear your take on star Lord.
1: Well, could you imagine just being like wiped off the face of this planet because like some girl that star Lord was interested in, like died. Yeah. It just makes you wonder like with the Russo brothers really just don't like star Lord um <laughs> like that he lost the bet or something. I was talking with one of my friends and we were talking about this theory that when Marvel had like made the plans and the bones of this movie, it kind of felt like they completely forgot about like or just didn't care about Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther. And it kind of felt like maybe this was written like right after Ultron or something <laughs> because it kind of feels like everything that's happened since then kind of like was in a holding pattern for this movie, the way the movie was written and the way it was was executed. And it was kind of like, oh, wow, Wakanda was awesome. Let's just like have a little play there and let's have a little bit of Spider-Man, a little bit like everyone doing their bit parts. So it kind of feels to me like it was uh, like the movie was kind of written right after Ultron, kind of right by when the first Guardians movie came out. And I think that kind of explains for me. That explains Star Lord being like this kind of. I mean, we've we've said it in chats that it's a little bit of toxic masculinity, and I think it's a little bit of just like showboating and a little bit of a. I don't know what it is. It's it's this kind of forced romance between Star Lord and Gamora, and I guess this was just the final chapter of it, unless she gets resurrected and we have to see it again.
0: Uh, that's that's one thing I, I mentioned the uh, the essay by my friend Lindsay. And that's the thing she talks about in that essay is how the Guardians movies use Star-Lord as a critique of emotional immaturity in men who think it's, you know, sort of cool to not really care about stuff. And like how those two movies add up to this interesting critique of that character. And this movie is kind of engaging with that but also kind of not. And I think one of the things that I'm fascinated by, you mentioned Thor, Ragnarok, and Black Panther sort of being ignored. And I would also include Guardians 2 to a large degree, though not as much. Those movies are not written by the guys who write most of the big Marvel event movies, Christopher Markus and Stephen McFeely, who wrote... This movie, I believe they wrote Civil War. I I didn't look that up. They write the big, big Marvel movies. um, And I feel like to a large degree, like, yeah, those other movies were there to give us more adventures with these characters. But also they didn't really add in too much to this story. It it reminded me of, this is a weird TV reference. It reminded me of the fifth season of The X-Files when they had made a movie that was coming out after the fifth season of the (laughs) X-Files. But like they could, they couldn't, they still had to do a whole season of TV that had to lead into that movie. So it's kind of like a bunch of episodes that are cool, but don't really have anything to do with anything.
1: Yeah. They don't change the stakes. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. And that's like Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther are really fun movies that have a lot to recommend them. But yeah, if you're looking at Marvel as like a serialized story, they don't add a ton. Although the one thing they do add is that we have this ending of Infinity War that, you know, ostensibly changes everything. And some of the characters we met in those movies are wiped out, presumably not forever. Alex, tell me a little bit about how you felt about this ending and then how you felt about the post-credits scene and how you think that might play into whatever's happening in the next movie.
1: Like, if you know, of every single sequel that Marvel has lined up, It confirmed a Black Panther sequel. It has a Guardians sequel. It has a Sony and Marvel have the Spider-Man Homecoming sequel. You know the characters that they killed off aren't going to stay dead. You're not going to just put in all new characters for all these movies. And that's why my, like, death predictions post on Vox.com, a website you should be reading, were all wrong. Because (laughs) I was like, well, I, like, checked off the boxes. I'm like, well, we have, like, this sequel coming up, and this sequel, and this sequel, and that sequel, and they can't get rid of these people and they kind of did anyway.
0: I'm really surprised you wouldn't watch a Guardians of the Galaxy that was just Rocket Raccoon and Nebula. Like that would be great.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think I would watch a Guardians of the Galaxy like if they just recruited like a, like three new people. It's like Destiny's Child. They kick off two more. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I mean, I I'm pretty excited about Captain Marvel. I think for anyone who that post credit scene went over their head a little bit. Or you need a refresher. Basically, Nick Fury has his beeper or some kind of device, and he sends it. He sends a message, and it like closes with the Captain Marvel logo, and that logo is stars and a couple stripes. And Todd Vanderwerf's large adult daughter, Brie Larson, is in it. Yes, <laughs> I'm. I'm not the biggest Brie Larson fan. I thought Emily Blunt should have been Captain Marvel, but um, it made me excited for it. If you look at what happened with Black Panther, and I think the whole success of Black Panther and when you talk to fans and seeing how much that affected them and seeing these characters that you don't see superhero movies or let alone other movies make room for like when was the last time you saw like a character like Shuri or a character like Okoye or Nakia they have these devout followings and seeing how that touched fans I mean I'm pretty hopeful for Captain Marvel and seeing what she can do and uh, what she represents for the entire Marvel universe and As someone who's been reading comics and you see, like, what Captain Marvel has done for women and girls who read comic books, I don't know. I'm pretty inspired. I'm pretty hyped for it. I can't wait for it. That cliffhanger was so good that I'm kind of disappointed that we just have Ant-Man coming out.
0: Uh, I I do want to ask you, like, though, I don't know a lot about Captain Marvel. Why is it, like, a hopeful sign that maybe she could be the one to help fix everything?
1: So, in the gigantic comic book universe you have um carol danvers who's kind of been this for a long time she was this i don't want to say b-list so maybe a minus list character who was kind of like a step below like all the leaders of the avengers right and then in 2012 you have kelly sue DeConnick, artist dexter soy jamie mckelvey is also an artist who who designed her new uniform and they basically leaned into this idea of this uh space captain I guess like the equivalent like she is uh, she is Marvel Universe's Wonder Woman. You have this kind of shift in this character who becomes this leader who like wants to go into space, who wants to like save the universe, who who is like thrilled about just kicking so much butt in the cosmic in Marvel's cosmic comic book universe. And she's a uh, and what she did and what what happened was that they brought a lot of people particularly women girls who don't read comics into into comics and then it sort of laid this foundation that you've seen over the last like few years in the comic book world of more people getting into it and more people being inspired by it and so i think one she's really cool a really cool character that's basically wonder woman i think i think just seeing like like the impact of black panther and like what it does for kids and what it does for like the conversations we have about like superheroes are heroes and like i don't know i'm super i'm super hyped for it i think it's going to be great she has photon blasts she can fly she's almost indestructible she's a heavy hitter like thor and the hulk who we didn't really get to see and so i guess that's part of it in the later arcs of captain marvel she becomes a leader and she she becomes one of the leaders who actually goes into space and protects everyone and it's part of a team that protects everyone. And what you're going to see, and what I think and what I hope that they're going to do, is show like her being a leader and show her calling shots. It kind of makes sense that you'd have this amazing, I guess, charismatic strategist-type person come in after everything's fallen apart. But again, we're probably going to just see the bones of that in Captain Marvel. And then I, I have a bet that... Uh, Captain Marvel is going to end with that beeper, with her getting the message. (laughs) I don't know how Nick Fury keeps the beeper charged. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that. But I think the beeper is going to play a role in Captain
0: Marvel. Well, Alex, thank you so much for talking with me. And I'm sorry that we didn't get into my beautiful red boy vision.
1: Oh, he he has such beautiful sweaters. All
0: I want is a British comedy of manners about a red robot man who like is like thrust into an Oscar Wilde play or something. I'm so sad I'm not getting that.
1: You need to read The Vision comic book, which is Vision's Existential Crisis. <laughs> for anyone let down by event, by Vision and Avengers Infinity War, go read the Vision solo comic. It's so good.
0: Alex, thank you so much for joining us and Avengers Infinity War is in theaters. So when I go out to record one of these episodes, I'm often running way behind. Like I have a really poor sense of how much time I have to be able to get to the studio, to sit down, to record. And that's why I'm so grateful for RX Bar because I can just reach in a box. I can pull out a bar. It's going to be nutritious. It's going to be tasty. And it's going to help me, you know, get my breakfast going in the morning. RX Bar's core ingredients do all the talking. It's simply like eating three egg whites, two dates and six almonds with no BS. And the real food ingredients, they actually taste good. You can taste the cacao. You can taste the real fruit. You can taste the sea salt and the other spices. And they come in 11 delicious flavor varieties, whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit, you're going to be able to find something good. Gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free with no added sugar. So even if you're like not like me and you have like an extensive planned breakfast every morning. There are so many other ways you could use RX bars. Snack at the office. You could have it in your bag for an airplane. You could toss it in your backpack for a bike ride. Use it for a pre or post-workout snack. And you know what? If you are interested in trying out RX bars, you can get twenty-five percent off your first order. You visit rxbar.com slash interesting and you enter the promo code interesting. It's in the title of the show. I think you're interesting. So it's rxbar.com slash interesting. Enter the promo code interesting at checkout. That's 25% off your first order. Again, rxbar.com slash interesting. The promo code is interesting at checkout. Hey, this is Dave Tack, co-host of Polygon's Quality Control, our podcast where we talk to an editor after they review a new game, a movie, or a piece of gear, and we allow them to add a little bit of extra context and insight, like why do they feel the way they did, or what do they wish they'd been able to discuss in more depth in their review. This week, Susanna Polo and I are discussing Avengers Infinity War, and oh boy, is there a lot to talk about. Listen to the episode by searching for quality control wherever you're listening to this podcast, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. So we're talking about Roseanne, the ABC sitcom. I am joined by Deputy Culture Editor Genevieve Kosky. Hello. And Culture Writer Caroline Framke. Hi, Todd. Basically what's happened is Roseanne has come back after over 20 years off the air. And Roseanne herself is a big Trump supporter. Her character is a Trump supporter. There's been a lot of arguments about this. Caroline, you and I have both written quite a bit about this, but like if you were going to explain this to, you know, somebody who wasn't paying attention at all, what would you say has happened uh, that has gotten people so up in arms?
2: People who are fans of the show in the first place were pretty conflicted about it because on the one hand, Roseanne coming back now kind of does make sense. Like people involved with the show said, I think I'm already over hundred words. But we're just going <laughs> to go for um, it. It makes sense to bring back a sitcom. If you're going to be bringing back sitcoms anyway, which we are, Will and Grace came back and- Mad about you might be coming back and all that, so bringing back Roseanne, which is about you know working class family in Illinois, makes sense right now and would be interesting to revisit and see where these characters were. However, Roseanne as a person, the actor outside the show, has gone in a very extreme direction because we're not talking just Trump supporter, which depending on who you talk to is already enough to condemn her, but she is a Pizza Gate conspiracy level far right supporter. And that is sort of in its own category. So that has made people unsure about the direction of the show. Roseanne is obviously involved. And of course, the decision to make her character a Trump supporter when originally, she came off as much more of like a feminist sort of character and someone who might not have been as into what Trump is about, struck people as maybe false and trying to fit what Roseanne the person is outside of the show
0: yeah that, you know what that's a that's a really good sort of pivot into talking about the history of the show and and Genevieve I know you're like a, a big fan of it so give me a sense of like why people feel Roseanne Trump supporter may be uh, a contradiction of what the original show was
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's two important things to keep in mind. One is that Roseanne was a controversial figure the first time around. Uh, She was controversial for different reasons, but there were famous behind the scene clashes on Roseanne from the jump. There was a lot of behind the scenes squabbling. She sat out a few episodes and they wrote around her. And even like talking about like cultural controversies you know she was a sort of a flashpoint figure even then there's the when she sang the national anthem that was a sort of a big cultural moment that the show later lampooned so this is all sort of part of the historical fabric of Roseanne what's different now is that then Roseanne the series definitely was uh, perceived to skew a lot more progressive just in terms of, you know, sort of Roseanne Barr's, uh, sort of her feminist uh, stance, and the show was just sort of built on economic concerns that allowed the show to sort of plumb stories that went in a more progressive direction than I think people would associate with a person, a celebrity who now is a vocal Trump supporter.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing that I thought about sort of when Caroline was talking was, We used to really, and this was not accurate, but this is the way that when the original Roseanne was on, working class was often defined as de facto white. Like if you were going to do a show like uh, Sanford and Son, that was about, you know, the black working class, the 70s sitcom, like that was like perceived as somehow different or something like that. And we're now in an era where we increasingly have realized that the working class includes all kinds of people of, you know, different races and genders and religions and all of that. Um, and we have a lot of great sitcoms about working class people who are people of color. You know, we have one day at a time on Netflix, arguably fresh off the boat, though they're business owners. So it's like uh, a discussion we could have. And I think that's interesting that like a lot of this has been about the shift in what we perceive as working class. And like, if there's one thing about Roseanne that seems a little backward looking to me at this point, it's that, that it just sort of, it sort of assumes that the working class is white people. And like, uh, so far as we've seen, uh, critics have seen seven episodes of the show at this point.
2: Yeah, I think it's not really particularly considered the intersection of race, even despite Roseanne now having a Black granddaughter. That has not really come up.
3: Just uh, kind of going back to the historical perspective for a second, I, I want to point out two things. One is that Roseanne originally debuted uh, within the same year or season as two other series uh, that focused on white working class families, one of which is married with children, and the other of which is The Simpsons. I guess you can sort of make the argument of whether The Simpsons are white, but come on, they're white. And then in terms of, you know, how the show dealt with this, I don't want to like present this as a you know, oh, Roseanne had Black characters from the beginning. But it, it, at least in the first season, when, and I believe the second season too, when Roseanne and Jackie were working in the plastics factory, um, they did have a, a co-worker named Anne-Marie and her husband Chuck, who were Black, and they were on the show pr- semi-frequently. They were recurring characters in the first two seasons. It's still like, you know, a pretty small blip in the, uh, in the larger scheme of Roseanne. But in terms of uh, its engagement with the working class, it did have an Anne-Marie and Chuck, you know, at least black characters representing that struggle in, on the show.
2: I was going to bring up that moment at um, the most recent Television Critics Association press tour that Todd, you and I went to in January, which was sort of ABC's first rollout for Roseanne. They were really excited about it, but they were also palpably nervous that Roseanne was going to go off script and say something that would crater everything. And that is she didn't crater everything, but she did go off script after several questions were asked of her about Trump. But the one that did it was a question from uh, the undefeated Soraya McDonald, who's great. And she asked about the black granddaughter and also set prefaced it by saying that Roseanne was very important to her growing up, she's black, and that there was a storyline that meant a lot to her about Roseanne um, teaching her son about racism and really speaking out against it. And then the question, which I thought was very smart, tied that to Roseanne's support of Trump and asked, how does she sort of square Roseanne becoming a Trump supporter with who Roseanne was in that moment? And I think this moment at that press tour, which was so unspeakably awkward, Um, speaks to a lot of these issues we've been talking about because I thought that was a very smart and fair question, Um, a good way to get into the sort of off-screen, on-screen clash that we've been talking about. And Roseanne took it to, well, black unemployment is at an all-time low and isn't that great, (laughs) which didn't go over super well. And then it became a whole snowball effect of Hillary Clinton in Haiti or something. Um, But it was a really striking moment. And I think that one I do believe that that was a question, sir, I asked in really good faith to sort of ask where the evolution of Roseanne, the character, went to. Um, I think the show, which, again, is not showrun by Roseanne, it's showrun by Whitney Cummings. The show understands on a certain level that if Roseanne were to become a Trump supporter, it's because she got older and crankier. But I'm not sure Roseanne sees it that way. And there are definitely there have been some moments in which I think They've given Roseanne the win in a way that
0: felt a little disingenuous. I think that we need to talk about Roseanne as a public figure and then also within the show, because one of the things people know about the original Roseanne often is that she was the de facto showrunner of that show. Like they had people who were called showrunners, but they were frequently pushed out. Roseanne was constantly chasing her vision of what the show should be, which led to some great television, some of my favorite television ever. But you're right that now, like the showrunners really are Whitney Cummings and, and Bruce Helford. And she also has this added level of Sarah Gilbert, who plays her daughter Darlene, is also an executive producer on the show. So like there are these levels that are sort of keeping Roseanne from being as powerful as she was on the original show. But at the same time, when she has the public platform she has, when she can tweet about things like the QAnon conspiracy theory, which I'm not going to try to explain because it will take us like 25 minutes. But when she's tweeting about these things that are legitimately harmful and lead to like discussions of things that are obviously not true, like – that skews perception of the show in certain ways, and like when the president calls her to congratulate her on her ratings, that skews perception of the show in certain ways. So, I'm wondering, Genevieve, as a fan of of the show, uh, what you feel like Roseanne's current public persona. Like how that either, obviously it's helped the show get great ratings to some degree, but do you feel it hinders it as well?
3: Oh, yeah. Well, it, it at least makes it a lot harder to be a fan of of Roseanne the series. But I think it has engendered a conversation that is worth having uh, that you have written about, Todd, about. Well, you know, very broadly, we talk a lot in in this time and place about separating the art from the artist, but also just about how we perceive Roseanne, the series, in connection with uh, Roseanne, the person, uh, and Roseanne, the character, for that matter. And people who I think watched and loved Roseanne the first time around and who have come of age since then have already maybe sort of reconciled this divide between Roseanne the person and Roseanne the series. Um, As I said, you know, she was a controversial uh, figure back then and really kind of never stopped being a controversial figure. Um, So when we were dealing, when fans were dealing with that in the context of the old show, it was, I think, a little easier to sort of reconcile that divide and being like, like, oh, that was then. This is now, blah, blah, blah. But now those conversations are sort of, you know, coming up to the surface again. And we have this new material, this new uh, version of the series to evaluate within this, this context that's sort of been building and changing since the show went off the air. And, I mean... It has not in any way changed my love of the original series. I'd be lying if I said that it didn't, you know, color how I watched the, the new series in any way. But I, you know, as a fan, I am still able to bring my love of the original series to this new one and sort of see how that version of the show played against this version of the show and what is still there that I loved and what's sort of changed over time.
0: Uh, One of the things I I do want to talk about is like this joke in the third episode, I think Roseanne and Dan uh, fell asleep and they missed some other shows.
1: Dan, you're snoring. Wake up.
3: What time is it? Did I miss dinner?
1: It's 11 Mm o'clock. We slept from Wheel to Kimmel.
2: We missed all the shows about black and Asian families. Well, they're just like us. There, now you're all caught up.
0: Now, there was a lot of outcry around that joke about the black and Asian family sitcoms. And here's a question from... I, I sort of have a hypothetical. If we didn't know anything about Roseanne, if we didn't know anything about who she was or her politics, like if she didn't have a Twitter account, if she never talked about politics or who she supported... Would that joke have caused as much of a furor? And I'm wondering what you think about that, Caroline.
2: No, I don't think so. I think it's still not at its base a good joke. (laughs) I just don't think it's that funny. But no, I don't think it would have caused quite as much um, concern as it did. But I think context matters and the context here did make it worse. Those shows blackish and fresh off the boat, we can assume. They're both great and deserve the attention. I always have to remind myself of this because sometimes I forget it, that when blackish was first announced, it was it was very controversial. And Donald Trump himself was tweeting about how outrageous it was that there was a show called Blackish that was going to like make fun of white people. So
0: context matters. And I think in this case, it definitely made that joke Come off worse, uh, another plotline from that episode that we're talking about, which involved Roseanne seeming to be in favor of spanking and and, you know, some sort of physical punishment of children. When in the original show, there was this like very heartfelt episode about how much she was hurt by her abusive uh, father. Like, to me, that was an interesting contradiction of the original show. But I've heard other people say it's not. And Genevieve, as a fan of the show, I'm wondering sort of where you come down on like does this character always feel like the Roseanne from the original show to you plus you know twenty some years
3: no i I did not care for that moment at all. It's actually the low point of the revival so far for me uh for me uh because it does you know i think i think contradict the character in a important way. I understand the argument that like. Abuse is, uh, is something that is handed down and people who were abused are more likely to abuse themselves uh, or become abusers themselves. But the original show just engaged with that exact idea, like very thoughtfully. And in going back on it, it, it sort of undermines what, what made that uh, that moment special in the original series. That said... Like, Roseanne as a character wasn't consistent for the first few seasons of Roseanne to begin with. Like, that character sort of evolved as the show was finding itself. Going back to season one of Roseanne is is a trip sometimes because that character is portrayed as a, you know she was really the the domestic goddess character that was like her stand-up persona and it really like leaned more into sort of the she's a really good mother and very caring you know and then as the show evolved and like its mythology I guess got you know more specific and and more in-depth this background for Roseanne and Jackie's childhood came in and Roseanne being abused as as a kid like became part of her character and I guess what is tripping me up about the new series engaging with it is the f- the extent to which the new series like does and doesn't engage with Roseanne continuity. Like there's been a lot of talk about, you know, how Dan is not dead now. And <laughs> apparently Jackie has forgotten that she had a kid. I, I, <laughs> you, you know, like there, there there's a lot from the original series that ha- seems to have been just thrown out the window. So. In that context, it makes me wonder if that element of Roseanne and and Jackie's character has been sort of thrown out the window.
2: There's something else that was kind of interesting about that storyline, because when Roseanne was trying to get Darlene to be harsher with her daughter, which is where the storyline comes from, and is basically trying to get her to spank her daughter, she gets annoyed with Darlene because, quote, your generation made everything so PC and blames her not wanting to spank her daughter on that, which I think speaks volumes about where this character is supposed to be. I think she does acknowledge that she was hit as a child, and there's a joke about Dan getting hit with a broom, and then it's actually, like, it's presented as a joke. And so I'm not sure if they forgot it so much as Roseanne herself is is apparently looking at it as, like, well, if you don't spank your kids, um, I guess you're too PC. And the other part of the episode that is interesting and not in necessarily, you know, the show's own hands is that the moment when Roseanne takes the punishment into her own hands, as it were, and sticks her granddaughter's head under a sink and kind of like holds her there. And like the audience, the thing that they couldn't control is the audience and the audience goes nuts for it. The audience loves it. And it's presented as this like hilarious moment. And I remember watching it and I watched it actually after um, I'd heard about some of the criticisms. And also pointedly, this was not an episode they gave critics beforehand. They gave us three episodes, but this was not one of them. And I feel like we know why. But I was watching it and being like, this feels disturbing, but it's being presented as a joke. And that was very purposeful. So I think there were a couple other things that play with the storyline that speak to where the revival sees its place. That didn't make me feel great about where it was coming from.
0: One thing I wanted to talk about was the use of the grandkids. I sometimes feel like, especially Roseanne's two younger grandchildren, her biracial granddaughter, who uh, her son DJ had with a black woman we haven't met, and uh, her uh, grandson, who is somewhere on the gender queer spectrum. He likes to wear women's clothing, but identifies as a boy. I sometimes feel like they're used as sort of a blanket-like protection of like, well, look at Roseanne. She's not that bad. She loves her grandkids. I think that's sort of an interesting thing. I'm not sure the show has engaged with it at all or engaged with that contradiction. Uh, and I'm I'm wondering if either of you have had thoughts along those lines about how the show uses the grandkids to sort of give Roseanne a get-out-of-jail-free card.
2: I've thought about that a lot because I feel like I saw some people after it initially premiered who questioned the fact that she could coexist under the same roof with those kids and it wouldn't be a problem for her supporting who she does. And if you're going to talk about – and the Roseanne promo tour sure did – wanting to bring different political ideologies together and acknowledge that families have different perspectives and people – have different priorities makes sense and is frankly kind of necessary to acknowledge that bit of contradiction where someone can square their support for someone like Trump with the people in their lives who they know and love i personally also know that contradiction within my own family i know it i know that's a real thing It's hard watching it without them maybe acknowledging it, like you said. I think they could do a little bit of a better job of acknowledging that disparity between supporting someone who has not been very supportive of those communities with the fact that these people are in their family and are people they love and know and should probably support more than just saying so. Call it hypocrisy, I would, that Roseanne... You know, loves these members of her family and doesn't want to acknowledge that the person she supports in office wouldn't feel the same way. I think that's an important element that I hope they talk about more.
0: I do kind of want to conclude our discussion by talking a little bit about the show's point of view, which is to my mind, when I see the episodes, when I see how the episodes are crafted, really the point of view lies with Darlene, played by Sarah Gilbert, uh, Roseanne's younger daughter who is in her 40s now and has had to move back in with her parents, uh, has two kids, is like, she was, on the original series, she was sort of like the the one Connor child who everybody was pretty sure was going to get out, and she obviously is not. And, like, the show plays her, her fate as a tragedy. Um, and to me, like, uh, most of the episodes are crafted as Darlene has a problem, her mom is sometimes often the antagonist, but then you throw it up in front of an audience and as Caroline said, like a moment like Roseanne holding her granddaughter's head in the sink is like, goes to like raucous cheering. Um, and that is just a a strange thing. So I'm wondering like what you feel the point of view of the show is is like meant to be and like whether that even matters, like – whether that matters in an environment where a show like this one has become as hyper politicized as it has.
3: Roseanne was all, I mean, obviously Roseanne's name was on it, but like it was always a show that got by on the strength of its ensemble and on its family dynamics. Just personally speaking, Roseanne Barr or her, her many names that she cycled through over the course of the show was never like the, the main attraction of the show for me. Like I, in probably one of my you know, biggest complaints about the revival so far is that two of my favorite characters, Dan and Jackie, have been somewhat sidelined in shifting uh the focus to uh to Darlene and her kids and her relationship with her mom. And like I get it, you know, Roseanne is the name that's on the show and the audience is like conditioned to Center that character within the show just by the fact that the show is called Roseanne. And obviously, they're not going to change the name of the show to Darlene. But I mean, the star of Roseanne was always the Connor family. And I think it's just the revival has just like shifted the center point within that family. The extent to which it, you know, succeeds or not has more to do with like how it tells stories within that. Recentered version of the family than like what that center is, and I think so far it's been a little hit or miss in that regard.
0: Well, thank you so much, Genevieve and Caroline and Roseanne. It's Tuesdays on ABC. I think you're interesting is up on all the pop cultural issues you need to care about. Thanks to me, not. Really, Just me, but I do host the show. I'm the host and executive producer, Todd Vanderwerf. My producer is Bridget Armstrong. The executive producer of audio here at Vox Media is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and George Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Kerry Clements. This week's episode is recorded at Rebel Talk Studios in Los Angeles. Our recording engineer was Ernie Hurtado. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever your heart pleases. It helps us get the word out about the show. We really appreciate all the ratings that have been coming in recently, especially. My email address, if you don't feel like leaving something in a review, is todd at two D's, T-O-D-D, at vox.com. You can email everybody who works on the show at ityi.podcast, ityi.podcast, at vox.com. You can also tweet at me at TVOTI to Next week, we're going to be doing something kind of interesting with our May. We are going to be talking to just some of my favorite writers from the world of television, especially, but maybe we'll get some other folks in there. And next week, we're going to be talking with Sarah Gamble of the TV show, The Magicians, which is really one of my favorite shows right now. She's one of my favorite writers, and we had a great chat. Please come back for that. But until then, that Afghan on Roseanne's couch... I want it, if if you know where I can get it You know how to email me, I just told you Um, So yeah, I, I need the Afghan, let's make it happen